0: All right, we're uh, in this journey through the book of Genesis. And, you know, we've made it through kind of these cosmic aspects of the narrative, God creating the cosmos, and then even the fall, and Adam's sin, and the cosmic ruin of creation, and then the flood, which has a cosmic feel to it. And now, all of a sudden, the story, it's like... uh, It just gets zoomed way in on one man and his wife. And as we look at this man, his wife, and then later his family, uh, we have to never forget, though, that as God is working through this one man, he has the whole world in mind. And it's through this man and his wife that he's going to work out his plan of redemption that really begins in Genesis 12. And so last week, we just looked at God's call to Abraham. In Hebrew, it's "lek lakah, and it literally means start walking. And Abraham did. He, he left. He got out. He, he started to walk. He gave up his comfortable, safe life. And as Hebrews 11 says does commentary on this. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his, as his inheritance, it says he obeyed and he walked. And in the next phrase, it says, even though he did not know where he was going. And so then you do the math from Ur to promised land, a thousand miles, every step of that journey is a step of faith, Abraham walking, trusting God, and not even knowing where he's going. And uh, today we pick up on that, Hebrews 12. For context, I'll start reading at verse four, but our text actually begins at verse six. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. These wonderful words, so Abraham walked as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated, the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. And Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, you made it. Pretty much, that's what he says to your offspring, this is the land that I was talking about that I will give to you. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, Abram went on toward the hills east of Bethel. He pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then Abraham set out and continued toward the Negev. Now there was famine in the land And Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, and this is something that every husband ought to regularly regularly say to their wives. I know what a beautiful woman you are. That actually was a great spot for amen, but guys, you blew it. (laughs) When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. And the Lord inflicted, it says serious diseases, but it literally reads plagues, a little foreshadowing of what's to come later in the story. The Lord inflicted plagues on Pharaoh and his household household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. "'What have you done to me?' he said. "'Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife?' Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. And then let's jump into 13, verse three. From the Negev, Abram went to the place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai. Ai. Where his tent had been earlier, where he had first built an altar. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. You can be seated. So, what we have to picture here is this caravan kind of setting off Abram, Lot, Sarah, their servants, all their animals, all of their possessions. And here, here they go. They, they don't know how far they have to travel. They don't know the land or what the land is going to look like. They don't know if the people there are going to be friendly. And I don't know if you ever had this experience of going to a foreign land where you're the one that kind of stands out. You're the one with the strange clothes. You're the one who talks funny. Um, and that's, that's what Abram is about to experience. So after months of probably traveling and trusting God the whole time, you have verse 5, Abram comes to a land called Canaan. This is where the Canaanites live. And he comes specifically to a place called Shechem, which is famous for this great tree. It's called the Oak of Moreh. Shows up other places in our text. Now, why this detail in verse 6 of this great oak tree? Well, most commentators tell us that this oak tree is a marker for pagan worship. So it's probably one of the great pagan worship centers uh, amongst the Canaanites. And the Baals, the Asherahs, are the gods that the Canaanites worship. They're the fertility gods, And, and, and we think fertility don't just think offspring, but think all of life. Baal and Asherah are pretty much the ancient world's version of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. And, and so the, the way that they always marked their worship centers were with these sacred trees because a tall, flourishing tree was the ancient world's symbol of prosperity. It was the symbol of life. Now, when you're thinking worship center, pagan worship center. I I don't know what comes to your mind. I I don't want you to think too deeply about this, Uh, but don't think house of prayer. Don't don't think what we're doing right here. Think something actually more closer to the red light district. Uh, Because the way that you worship Baal and Asherah was primarily through sexual indulgence and sexual perversion with their priests and priestesses. This is why when God's people actually take the land later in the narrative, God instructs them in Deuteronomy 12, verse 2, he says, destroy completely under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing, where they worship their gods. They worship their gods under these sacred trees. Or the prophets later, when this pagan worship seeped into God's people, the prophets would say things like, under every spreading tree, Israel, you have laid down like a whore. Um, so, why this place? When Abraham gets here, God pretty much shows up and says to him, You made it, Abraham. This is the land. This is the land that I'm going to give to you. Welcome. And if you look closely at verse seven, this is more than just God's voice, but two times it says that God appeared to Abram. And I like this. So in 12 verse one, Abram hears God's voice, his word, and he walks and he's faithful. And now he gets God's face. Like Job said, My eyes had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. And this will be the first of three times where where God will appear to Abraham. I don't know what you do with this. I don't know what comes to your mind. But John 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. No one has ever ever seen God, says John 1.18, but it keeps going, except the one and only son who is himself God and has made God known. So when God appears in a human kind of way, or as Philippians 2 describes it, when God empties himself of all of his glory so that he can actually show us his face, scholars have a fancy word for this. They call this a theophany. Paul says the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Christ. That means these theophanies are Christ and they're all over the Old Testament. Now you don't have to buy what I'm selling, but in my mind it's so clear. And then when I I think about this, in Genesis 12, verse 1, uh, God's word, it comes to Abraham and he hears it. But now in in our text today, uh, the word of God appears to him. And I just love to think about how Abraham, he finally gets to promised land and his first encounter is a face-to-face encounter with Christ himself. Already this story is so wonderful. And this is why Abram's response is he builds an altar right there. On this pagan place of worship, he reclaims this pagan place of worship for the worship of the almighty God. And I, I could take you to story of, after story of how this specific place is found in the biblical narrative. Let me just give you a few places. Uh, In Genesis 35, fast forward now to Abram's grandson, Jacob, who gets estranged from his family for decades, but now is returning home uh, in part to make things right with his family. And as he's coming home, really fearful about this encounter with his brother Esau, who he has deeply offended But now it's coming home to him. They come to this place in Shechem to this great oak. And this is what Jacob says to his family. We're gonna have a family revival right now, right here. He says, get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you, purify yourselves, then come and I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they, these are all his family members, gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, the rings in their ears. And Jacob buried them under the great oak in Shechem. And so Shechem became this place of worship for generations to come. This this place where God's people did business with God, where they repented, where they got their their lives right with God. Where they would even dig holes in the ground and bury things that were causing them to drift from God. In fact, even further into the story, Joshua... After God's people had finally uh, inherited the land in Joshua, right before he's about to die, this is all in Joshua 24, gathers all the people to this very site. He recounts all of God's faithfulness uh, to God's people, probably even points to that oak tree, points the altar that Abram built, all started here. And this is where we get right with God. And this is the place where Joshua then just says to them, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we're putting a stake in the ground. We are serving the Lord. And if that seems desirable to you, he says, then get rid of all the foreign gods, bury them. Probably point right at that tree, just like your father Jacob and his family buried their idols. You know, I think about this story and I think, this is so God's agenda. God's plan is far more than just to save a few souls and take them to heaven. God wants to reclaim a world he loves, even its most pagan places like Shechem. What are those pagan places today? What are the Shechems of our world? And are we doing anything about it? Because God wants to redeem them. He wants to make those places, places of worship to him. And God is doing this in our story through a partnership with Abram. Later, he's gonna partner with Abraham's people of which today we are now a part of this family to be a part of God's plan, which is to reclaim all of creation. I keep reading our text, and Abram travels further into the promised land, and next he settles at a place called Bethel, and verse 8 says, uh, there he builds another altar to the Lord. In fact, this is what Abram does. Wherever he goes, it's like he's marking the place for, for worship of God. He builds an altar. And now here at Bethel, Bethel is a place that means house of God, and this place too become uh, a significant place in the narrative. For instance, later Jacob, when he makes such a mess of his life and has to run away from his family, the first night he's, he's on the run, and he puts his head on that pillow, which is a rock. It's right there in Bethel, and it's in this place, which means house of God where God creates that staircase and comes walking down that staircase and stands right over his head and says, I'm gonna be with you, Jacob. I'm gonna be with you, trust me. When is the last time you built an altar to God? When you said, may this place, may this relationship, may this calling, may this... Job, may this vocation, may this marriage, may this home be sacred ground. When's the last time you got alone with God and just either dedicated or rededicated your life to him? When's the last time where, where you got with God and, and you actually surrendered something? where you sacrifice something in your life to him because that's actually what an altar is. An altar is a place of sacrifice and surrender. And I know some of us, sometimes we get uptight about altar calls or or doing mikvah or people even getting baptized more than once, but don't you think this is just the way we build altars to God? The way we just put our stakes in the ground? in a way that we're saying to God, God, I want my life, I want my heart, I want everything about me to go deep into you. i telling you, if we're gonna be like Abraham, if we're gonna walk like Abraham, have the life of Abraham, this is what it looks like. Wherever this guy goes, he's building altars to God. He's constantly staking his life into God. So this is Abraham. I mean, we're going to read story after story of this where we're going to be left like, wow, that's inspiring. This is a great man of God. In fact, he's one of the few people in the Bible to actually be called a friend of God. (laughs) Man, that would be amazing to be called that. But one of the things the Bible never, ever does, it never flatters its heroes. In fact, if we're tempted to make anyone a hero, the Bible will just show us that that hero is just a mere person. Abraham is just a man like us. Now there's probably two things. If I'm putting myself in Abraham's shoes and, and he gets to the promised land, there are two things that I think he's surprised by and maybe even disappointed in. The first, I think, is that there's Canaanites. God, I thought you were giving me land, but not a land filled with Canaanites. We'll talk more about the Canaanites later. The second thing that I think shocked him, remember, this is a guy who walked a long way for God, trusting him, is that there'd be famine here. Famine in promised land? Well, I think I'm stating the obvious for those of us who have read our Bibles that in the Bible, famine oftentimes follows faith. I said that right. Famine oftentimes follows faith. And I know some of you are thinking, wait a second, I, 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 I thought prosperity followed faith. There's a false gospel out there that says when you trust God, you're not going to get sick. When you trust God, your life is going to be perfect, prosperous. You're going to be protected of all accidents, hardship, and suffering. And I think you preach that gospel to the 12 disciples, where all but 12 of those guys, all but one of those guys were martyred because of their faith. You preach that gospel to to someone like the Apostle Paul, who I think could preach one of the most amazing sermons by simply just pulling his shirt up and showing his back and all the scars. I mean, you preach that to countless of people in this room right now who've experienced intense famines in their life, who walk faithfully with God. Yeah, a lot of times famine follows faith. So then the question for, for, for those of us with faith is, is what do you do with famine? So in Abraham's situation here, he, he, he's not just uh, his own man, he has 300 servants, he has a wife, what's he to do? Some of you are, are, are there right now. Do, do you just automatically go where the jobs are? Do you, do you just go where, where there's food? Do you, do you go where, where life is just easier and it's gonna be more comfortable? Now, you could start to make the argument that Abraham never should have left the land. He should have trusted God. In fact, his son Isaac trusted God in famine. We're gonna read about this and he never left. He stayed right in the promised land and the text says us, tells us that Isaac reaped a hundredfold. I don't know, I, I, I do know that, that God wants us to have incredible faith. He, he wants us to trust him What Abraham decides to do is to go to Egypt. Now, Egypt in the ancient world is the United States. It's this superpower. It's this place of immense prosperity. It's a place of refuge. People from all over the world would migrate here because they had this thing called the Nile River, and the Nile River meant there was always going to be food in abundance. This is why uh, Egypt metaphorically in the Bible is seen as this seductive place, uh, a, a place that promises us so much. Uh, Egypt in the Bible is a symbol of worldliness. It's where people get enslaved. That's what Egypt, the term literally means. It, it means bondage, where you get enslaved to comfort and the things of this world and, and, and the, your, your desires and, and the things of Egypt that entice you in. This is why throughout the biblical story, God is constantly warning his people, don't go back to Egypt. Don't be allured. Don't be enticed. I mean, you have texts like Isaiah 30, Isaiah 31. Isaiah 30 says this, stubborn children, declares the Lord, children who carry out a plan, but not my plan, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn into your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt turn into your humiliation. But here I think what we see in Abram, he's wandering off the path. He's being seduced by Egypt. He stumbles. His life now is starting to get off track. And this won't be the last person in the Bible to do this. And as Abram's getting closer and closer to Egypt, he realizes that he has a problem on his hands that he he spells out in verse 11. His problem is that he has a very beautiful wife. (laughs) She's a 65-year-old beauty queen. And he knows it. And he knows the Egyptians are going to know it when he gets there. But this is what I just want us to see. Why is Abram all of a sudden full of fear? I mean, are Egyptians that much worse than Canaanites? I don't think so. No, here's what's happening. Abram's life is getting off track. He's no longer walking with God. He's no longer walking God's path. And the telltale sign is fear. Verse 12, he's afraid for his life. This is the first time now that we see this fear. Not faith. Faith now is replaced with this fear. And it's, it, it's so out of character for a guy who's usually fearless. And I really believe this is less about the situation he's in, and it's more just the reality of what happens when our life gets off track. Fear, worry, anxiety are the symptoms in our lives when we're not walking with God. There's so many psalms, like Psalm 27. David says, the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though a whole army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I, may, I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, house of the Lord, that I may dwell in Bethel all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek his face in the temple. But see, Abram has forsaken Bethel, house of God. He has left God. He's pushing God out of his life because Abraham is now the one in charge. Abraham is now the one who's scheming. Abraham is the one calling the shots. Abraham is the one who's running his life. And here we see the potency of sin. Sin can start With something as small as a half-truth. And this half-truth is going to lead Abram to literally pimp his wife. And if you're wondering right now, wait, is it really that bad? (laughs) Let me show you how bad this is. Look at verse 12. He says to his wife, they will kill me and you will live. In other words, what he's saying is my life is in danger and your life isn't. Okay, Abraham, what's so bad about that? Well, then you have verse 13. So let's lie. Let's, let's put your life in danger so that it may go well for me. Let's sacrifice your life for my life. And that's what's going on here. And this is the complete antithesis to a biblical man and a biblical husband. Hey, let's throw a wife in harm's way so that I can be okay. Now, Ephesians 5 makes it very clear. Husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loves his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. Husbands, you know what this means? This means that a husband is to literally lay down his very life for his wife. It means a husband is to protect his wife at all costs. We are to protect their honor. We are to protect their reputation. We are to protect their hearts. We are to protect their souls. We are to protect their walk with God. It's my life for your life. I'm to sacrifice everything for my wife, Libby. And so how does someone go from the person in verse 8 to the person in verse 13? How does one go from Bethel, house of God, to Egypt, house of bondage? Well, think about David, King David in our Bibles. For David, it started with just a small compromise here then a little bigger compromise there and now his life is a bit off path and soon he's amassing all these wives for himself. Oh, then he sees one of his best friend's wife and he's like, I want her too and he has an affair with her and then for fear that he might get caught, it's like, I gotta take uh, one of my best friends out now so that no one knows about it and he takes him out, whew, this can happen to anybody. If this can happen to David, if this can happen to Abram. Now look at verses 14 through 16. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his harem, essentially. And Pharaoh treated Pharaoh Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. (laughs) Abram's getting really rich off this thing. But I don't think Abram ever, when he started off with this scheme to like, let's tell this little lie that he thought it would lead to him pimping his wife out to Pharaoh. I don't think he ever thought he'd have to pay this high of a price. I'll tell you what, when our schemes and our plans do not align with God, they will always take us to a bad place. And we need to know, too, that a single decision can get us off of God's path. And then you start making a few more decisions in that same direction. And a person's life can be in Egypt in a moment... I mean, maybe it starts with just purchasing something that you think is no big deal, but soon you find that you always need the, the next and best, the bigger and the better of that thing, and you can't stop, and you're a slave then to buying and to consuming and always having to have the best. Or maybe you start off going to a place that you just know you shouldn't go to it, but you go there just thinking that this will just be a one-time event, but then, ah, you decide, "Ah, just one more time, just one more time," And then your whole life, you find it's consumed with actually trying to find a way to make it to that place, and you're addicted or maybe it's a relationship that that starts going off in the wrong direction and it's compromised and you know it it shouldn't be going where it potentially might be going but you don't stop it instead you nurture it and soon this whole thing has you to the point now you're a slave to it or maybe right now you're doing something that you know yeah it's it's just a little bit off but then over time it gets further off and But you can't stop because of how it makes you feel or it's medicating some pain in your life. And pretty soon you're like, I can't even say no to that thing anymore. You're a slave. Remember in Sunday school, the song that we were taught, oh, be careful little hands what you touch. Oh, be careful little hands what you touch. For your father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Because the Father is up above; He's looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And see, before we know it, our lives, our hearts, can be so far from Bethel, from House of God, where we're just completely entangled. In the stuff of Egypt. And see, when that happens, our brains almost stop functioning because what now is abnormal seems very normal, and, and what is normal seems very abnormal. And why does this go on? Because our hearts are being seduced and consumed with the stuff of Egypt, that, that even Bethel and the things of God look so goofy. Now, who thinks this worked out well for Abram? You think he got a good deal out of this? If you do, you're kidding yourself. I'll tell you this I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade my wife in a second for this pile of rubbish sheep, cattle, men servants, maid servants. I mean, think about how devastated Abraham would be every time he got on one of those camels. His heart would have been drowning in this agony of of how much that camel cost him. Because nothing comes for free. In this scenario, it came at such a huge huge cost. The cost of his wife no longer being with him. The cost of his wife being with Pharaoh. All the things that your mind would imagine what that involved all gone, sacrificed on the altar of getting your life off track and forgetting God. It could happen to any of us. I'll tell you the hero of this story. Sarah. And we don't really see it because our NIV didn't, it just translated out two important words in verse 17 where it says, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. Why? Because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. But what it leaves out is the word of, El Dabar, because of the word of Sarah. That's how it reads. In other words, Sarah had the guts to tell the truth to come clean on this thing. And the only way that you and I will ever get out of Egypt is we absolutely must come clean. We need the courage to get real. We need to stop playing games. We need to tell the truth. Because unless we have the courage to tell the truth about who we really are and to admit our wrong, we're never gonna get out of the clutches of Egypt. Egypt will own us. And this is what scares me about so many Christians today. And I, I, I really believe this is more true of Christians than non-Christians. There's so many Christians are still hiding. We're still pretending. Some of you are just so scared of being found out. You're, you're scared about what people might think of you. But listen, our sin will always find us out. Always. And here's what I love about Sarah, besides just being the hero of the story, the one with the courage, the one who finally just tells Pharaoh the truth. This is what is. I'm not his sister, I'm his wife. Sarah is also the one in the story who points us to Christ. Because think about verse 13. Sarah is the one who's given up here. Sarah is the one who is, is made sin. Sarah is literally made an adulterer all for the sake of Abraham. Her life is sacrificed so that Abraham's life could be spared. I want us to see this because this points us to Christ in such a beautiful way. And when we know this, this is why we can get real and come clean. This is why we can actually tell the truth because we, of what we have in Christ today, I mean, in Christ, we have one even greater than Sarah. We have a husband who absolutely loves us, who protects his bride at all costs, who lays down his life for his bride, who knows everything about us and yet loves us with an everlasting love. That's the gospel. And the gospel doesn't say that sin is no big deal or that God just, when he sees our sin, just sweeps it under the rug. No, the gospel says that sin, that your sin and my sin, it's a very big deal. It's deadly, it's damnable, and that somebody has to pay for it. All of it. And the gospel is the amazing news that Christ, who knew no sin, was made to be sin. He was made to be our sin. He bore our sins so that we could have his righteousness. That Christ was given up, that he was sacrificed so we could be spared. And I look at verse 13, 17 and I think about those plagues that God is now sending on Pharaoh. And this is all foreshadowing The plagues that God will later send upon Egypt in the Exodus, but it's also foreshadowing something even greater than that, a judgment day when God and his plagues, the plagues that you and I deserved, will be placed on Christ, where Christ is inflicted by those plagues so that we could be like Sarah, dazzlingly beautiful, without stain, blemish, Or defect and then if you even push the gospel even further and start asking questions like why would god do this and paul's prayer answers that that we could know how high how far how deep how wide is the love of god in jesus christ And when we know this love, we're healed, we're free. We're set free of Egypt and all of its stuff. And then I look at the, the, the narrative and I ask, what did Abraham to do? Abraham have to do to get out of this mess? He just had to return. That's why I read verses three and four of chapter 13. He leaves Egypt and he returns to Bethel. He goes to the very place where he built that altar to the God and he comes home to this house of God, to this worship. I bet he even dug a hole and he buried some of those things still from Egypt. And if you're in Egypt today and you're entangled, Return. In fact, the word for return in Hebrew is shuvah. It means to repent. And repentance is simply leaving sin and returning to God. It's coming home. It's leaving Egypt and it's returning to Bethel, to the arms of God. And here's the verse, Zechariah 1 through 3. Therefore, tell the people, says the Lord Almighty, Return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you. May 2024 be about this church leaving Egypt and all of its stuff and returning to God, coming home, As Martin Luther said, the first of his 95 theses, all of life is repentance. Are you too proud to repent? I love Jesus. He's always asking people to repent and oftentimes he's asking them to go public with their repentance. We can go public we can come up to one of these bowls and we can wash today. We can wash of the stuff of Egypt and return to the arms of God. Return to me, says the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. God, I'll be the first to say, there's way too much Egypt in my life. And God, I even pray that you would continue through your Holy Spirit to put your finger on more of the stuff of Egypt that I can't even see. And God, cause my heart, cause our hearts to return to you with all of our heart to seek you with everything we have for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.